0: Welcome back to the show that tells you you are a quantum computer with free will in a universe teeming with meaning. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is Episode 9 of the Quantum Consciousness Series. Today's episode is Part 3 of a Metaphysics 3-parter, in which we will be discussing three world models of consciousness. The primary question that we'll get to later on in this episode is... Can entanglement relationships at a macroscopic level serve as the foundation for constructing platonic forms and semantics? This episode is available on YouTube and an audio-only version is available on Apple Podcast. If you find all of this interesting, then please like the video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment below, or write a review. Join me deep inside the all right, let's get started. So in the previous two episodes, episode seven and eight, I talked about physicalism, reductionism, and behaviorism, as single world models that can describe consciousness without any reference to mental stuff or platonic forms as anything different than physical reality. And I talked about some of the reasons why this model is very attractive in that it avoids a lot of the more woo-woo or topics that, that feel a little more um, based in personal subjective experience and it's much more data-driven. Then, last week, I talked about dualism and how dualism postulates a mind sort of stuff and a physical sort of stuff. Um, And these might really just be different forms of the same thing, but it's a useful uh, construction to talk about these two different phases, potentially, of, of a system. And the example I gave was digital computers and quantum computers and how there's gotta be some trade-off in the construction of a quantum computer where you have a digital computation phase switching into a quantum computation phase and how this might be a really strong analogy to how mind-body interactions would look like in practice in a sort of computational basis in, in our future. Now in today's episode, I'm gonna talk about three world models And these are obviously the most um, nuanced or less known in the mainstream of academia or of science. And I find these really fascinating because I find them very useful and really interesting. And I think that people should really entertain them and think about them. So for today, I'll be talking about first, David Chalmers and his idea of the easy problem and the hard problem of consciousness and his model of naturalistic dualism. And I put it in this episode because it really invokes a lot of these concepts related to meaning and platonic forms. And so that'll sort of serve as a transition from dualism into trialism. Next, I'll be talking about Plato, and he has a couple concepts really relevant to us here. One is the allegory of the cave, which is a really fascinating allegory if you haven't heard of it. And it has a lot of relevance to the Matrix trilogy, which I'll also uh, talk about. And then Plato talked about a tripartite soul and how this serves as a representation of the greater society that we live in. And then finally, I'll end today's episode talking about entanglement and how entanglement is the spooky action at a distance, which may serve as a foundation for building platonic forms and building meaning And this is much more speculative but interesting. And we'll also be talking about David Bohm's hidden variables and his concept of a pilot wave in that discussion. So let's get started. So I'm going to talk about David Chalmers. And David Chalmers is such an inspiration, really fascinating writer um, on topics of philosophy of mind. And he frames this idea of the easy problem of consciousness as being... How do we generate behaviors in our body? So how do we create something that looks conscious and behaves as if it was conscious, but we don't need to worry about those ooey gooey feelings and subjectivity. Let's just focus on generating a complex behavior that appears to be conscious. The hard problem of consciousness deals with qualia, or this feeling of of having an experience, the feeling of pain, the subjective quality of seeing a color. And so the hard problem of consciousness is asking us to think about how do we get these subjective raw feelings out of metaphysics, out of the world around us. And so the easy problem really maps nicely and closely onto this physical world, these digital computers. We wanna create something that behaves in a way that looks conscious And I think the best analogy for the easy problem is artificial intelligence. We can create these very complex systems, which are fundamentally built out of simple principles, but then at this macroscopic collective scale, all of this processing of data can yield very complex behaviors and can also Um, Generate solutions to novel problems that the system hasn't ever seen before using its prior data and the network that it's built together of different associations. And so arguably, digital computers and the connection between digital computers to some sort of human cognition serves as a sort of solution to the easy problem. Now, the much harder problem is how do we get this semantics, this feeling, this subjective raw feel, and how does that then map into behavior? And so you might kind of think of this as a dualistic, you know, the mind stuff and the body stuff. Understanding the body, the behavior is the easy problem. Understanding the mind is sort of the hard problem. But what I'll be pitching to you today is that David Chalmers has this notion of naturalistic dualism. And I would argue that this is really a dualism between the physical world and the platonic world, and the mental world is sort of mapping between the physical and the platonic. And if you remember back to our previous episode, we talked about Descartes and how Descartes has a substance dualism where you have physical stuff and mental stuff, and there's maybe some sort of route between the two through God or through the Platonic world of concepts and meaning. Here, Chalmers has put his own sort of Cartesian impasse, but instead of between mind and body, he puts it between semantics and syntax. The physical realm as being syntactical, having data without any sort of meaning attached, and then this level of semantics or meaning, which is detached from any syntax. And how do you go from the semantic platonic level into the digitized syntactical physical level? Well, he argues that this routes through the mind, and that there is a sort of structural coherence, as he calls it, where every person is going to have some way that they map physical syntactical input into semantic meaning and so your particular understanding of certain words is going to be how you translate sound waves or data into some sort of higher order conceptual meaning and so if i use the word quantum for example you probably have a bunch of different associations out there some people think one thing some people think another thing and so when we're talking to each other we're using the same words but we're meaning very different things So the platonic forms or the concepts or the meaning that's evoked at this platonic level is very different depending on that structural coherence that you have mapping concepts onto syntax or onto words. And so how do we get from one person understanding another person? How do we get the same information to map onto the same meaning? How does data go to meaning in a systematic way? Well, Chalmers argues that there's something called organizational invariance, complex word, but essentially what it means is that if you can reorganize your structure for mapping syntax into meaning, then you can get onto the same page with someone else. And so through organizational invariance, you can essentially at some point, if you sit down and really talk with someone deeply, get your syntax to map onto the correct semantics. And so David Chalmers calls this dual aspect theory of information. And so information has a semantic universal aspect and it has a syntactical particular aspect, right? So there's this universality to meaning and this infinitely divisive and hard to understand syntactical level. And it's up to us to build a structure that goes from the syntactical to the semantic. And that routes through the mind, through our personal experience. And to build a shared experience, we have to understand how other people are perceiving our words and what meaning they're mapping our words onto in the platonic realm. And we try to shift our words and, you know, redefine our words to mean the same thing so that we're really having a true conversation and the information or the concepts that we're simulating in our mind are mapped onto each other. And so this relates to linguistics a bit, and we'll come back to this in a future episode on linguistics. But Chalmers also argues that there are two-dimensional semantics. There's sort of your primary intention, which is when I'm talking to you, I have a very clear idea of what information I want to convey to you. However, There is a secondary intention, which is unintentional on my part, but it's that you perceive my words through your lens of experience. And so what I'm trying to convey to you might not actually get conveyed properly because you have your own way of viewing the world, of seeing things. And my words hit your perceptual apparatus, map onto certain meaning. And I'm here saying, no, 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 I don't mean that. I'm actually talking about something else. And that is secondary intention, that there are a sort of unintended consequences of our words on each other's thought processes. And we're trying to get our primary intention to map on to the other person. And so in understanding the difference between primary intention and secondary intention, primary intention being the platonic world, secondary intention being this physical world and the problem with transmitting data effectively, There's an intention structure, just like the structural coherence, where we need to understand each other's true intentions. And by doing so, we're sort of mapping once again through their experience and through how they view the world and how they're using words. And what their primary intention is can then be better understood by really understanding that structure that maps words onto meaning. Alrighty, so I'm sure you can see from all of that, that this is inherently very three-worldist, right? And so we have a physical world and a platonic world, and those are very clearly different in David Chalmers' thinking about this. And he has sort of an implied mental world that's being routed between the two. I will say that Chalmers' notion of the mental world might be a little fuzzier, and I'm sort of pushing this tri-world model onto what he might view as a little more dualistic however i think what chalmers ends up concluding from all of this is that he ends up coming off as somewhat of a pan psychist where if there's any sort of information processing there's going to be some sort of semantic um, association mapping on to that syntax And so anytime you have syntactical processing, you have semantics that's getting thrown along for the ride. And that is what he sort of thinks of as core to consciousness. And so for him, he ends up being more of a panpsychist, meaning everything can kind of be conscious. Anywhere you see information processing, you're finding some sort of conscious um, aspect going along with it. I personally, uh, I, I think there's some merit to panpsychism on some level. But like we've been talking about with quantum computers, there's probably a limitation and a definition for how to create macroscopic conscious beings. You need biology, you need a lot of infrastructure to create something that can sustain an entity at this macroscopic scale. And so, yeah, there's gonna be a a syntax going in, this digital information, some sort of processing internally, and then a mapping onto this more macroscopic semantic level. Alrighty, so let's move on to Plato. So Plato has this idea of the allegory of the cave. And I find it a really compelling, interesting idea. And the idea is that you are a prisoner. You're shackled to the ground in a cave in the dark. And your whole life, you were born into a cave and you were shackled and you're facing a wall. And your eyes are just glued to this stone wall, low lighting, not very comfortable. And you're pretty much trapped there now what do you spend all your day doing well there is a small passageway leading into your small little cavern and there is a single source of light and from that single source of light you are able to see shadows projected on the wall in front of you and these shadows take the form of people walking by outside of the mouth of the cave You're seeing a shadow of a person, shadow of a horse pulling a cart, right? You see a bunch of shadows of things out there in the world. And so you being a prisoner in a cave, you are staring at these shadows and you conclude these shadows, they are people, these shadows, they are horses and carts. And you take those reflections or those projections onto that wall to be reality, and you truly believe that that wall is reality, and your metaphysical perception of everything is that this wall is all that there is, to the degree that you don't even realize that you're actually a prisoner trapped inside of a cave. You are so fixated on this wall and on these shadows that you just believe that that's all that there is out there. All right, what does this mean? Well, what this means is that the shadows are our bodies and the shadows are the data fed to us through our eyes, fed to us through our ears and our nose and our our touch sensation and all of the senses and all the sensory perception that you receive is a shadow of what's actually out there. You are a prisoner in your body and you've never seen the real world. The real world does exist out there but every time that you look at it, you're looking at it through a meat sack, through a perceptual system, and you've never had a direct contact with the real world out there. The sun is Plato's allegory for the good, the form of the good, the the concept of meaning. There's this deeper, bigger, meaningful universe out there, but we're trapped in a cave, And we need to find a way to realize that the cave of our bodies is not the true reality. It is a reflection of true reality. And we can still learn about true reality through the shadows. But we need to take the shackles off and run out of the cave into the light and experience the glory of the good form. Right. And so that is sort of the the metaphor there. How do you do that? Well, you become a philosopher You start thinking about your place in the universe, you start realizing the limitations of your perceptions, of your trapped in this body, you're trying to break out of it by thinking really hard and questioning what you know and thinking and rethinking what, what you've come to believe your whole life. And you're trying to get to these forms and to this deeper meaning, and you do it through thinking and philosophizing and watching this YouTube channel. All right, so how does this relate to pop culture? Well, the Matrix is the ultimate allegory of the cave in movie form. And I'm gonna spoil everything from the Matrix, so if you don't like that, just skip ahead a little bit. But Neo is trapped in the Matrix, and this is the cave. He believes that he is a computer programmer at this company, and that his friends are, are really there. But in reality, he is in a goo pod in the in the real world, which is run by machines. And it's all just a projection, a dream fantasy. And while he is real, he actually is, you know, a conscious being, he's being fed this entire cave reality. This, this shadow projection reality into his mind, and he believes it to be real. And so what does he do? He breaks out of the matrix, and he goes into the real world, and he realizes that his life has been a lie, and that he's trying to seek out truth and figure out the, the true nature of reality. That's movie one. Now what's really fun is in the third movie, this is Ultimate Spoilers, Neo has this experience where he becomes blinded. He actually gets physical damage to his eyes and he loses sight. And what happens sort of miraculously or interestingly is that he breaks out once again of the cave and he starts to see light as kind of raw conscious energy or conscious beings. And so, what's really cool is I think, and this is sort of some speculation I've had with some of my some of my friends, is that the third movie is br- like breaking out of the real Plato's cave, right? So, the Matrix was sort of an uh, an analogy or a metaphor for Plato's cave, and it taps into a lot of that same construct. But then, in the third movie, he breaks out of seeing the physical world as the ultimate truth and he starts seeing consciousness directly in the form of light and I think at the end of the movie he sees light in the robots and he kind of sees that the robots do have consciousness or do have some sort of raw sense of being and he's witnessing his own energy or light or consciousness and and that of, um, of the machines. And you know, pretty nice analogy back to Plato's Cave once again where the sun is sort of this metaphor for deeper truth or deeper meaning and Neo breaks out of the real Plato's Cave in movie three. Anyways, that's my pitch. All right, so in summary about the allegory of the cave, Plato has a very similar framing of his three-world model as David Chalmers. He has what is called the dividing line. And this is a line that divides the physical world, the shadows, the, the particulars, the input from the body, from the platonic world of forms, the realm of meaning, of concepts, of squares, of numbers, triangles, Right. And then you are the mental world, and you're trying to break through this dividing line into the platonic realm, and you're trying to see truth and see meaning more directly, and you have to break through this sort of hard barrier between the physical and the platonic. Similar to Chalmers' syntax and semantics, the mind sort of has a mapping between semantics and syntax. Plato takes a more sort of dramatic approach take on it where you need to break into the platonic world it's sort of hidden from us meaning is hard to get to and so we're sort of shoving our way out of syntax and towards a more semantic um, perception of the world all right so in plato's republic plato talks about the tripartite soul and this is very similar to these three different worlds so on the physical realm, he has what you, he calls money makers or merchants. And these are the level of sort of taking care of the body, taking care of the home, having physical stability, um, sort of facing these evolutionary pressures to stay alive and taking care of the physical realm. How do we master the physical body? He says through moderation, right? Not giving into addiction or giving into obsession. Next we have the mental world and he called these the warriors, sort of the warrior class of the city. And the warriors are really defined by courage and how we overcome the mental world and the trappings of the mental world is through courage and by not sort of giving into fear or giving into apathy perhaps, and staying you know, in this domain of emotion and feelings, we need to stay courageous, right? So we got moderation in the physical world and courage in the mental world. And then finally, we have the guardian class of Plato's city, and this is characterized by philosophers and by wisdom. And so the trick to the platonic realm is to be a philosopher, seek out real truth, question everything, and try to acquire wisdom throughout our lifetimes. And then finally, Plato says that essentially, when all three parts of your soul, the physical moneymaker, the mental warrior class, and then the platonic... Um, philosopher, guardian class, when those all come together, you have a sense of justice. And Plato actually described this as a triforce symbol, which was later adopted by the Zelda series, but where you have three different triangles representing your three different parts of your soul. And when they come into alignment, you have that creation of the fourth triangle, which is really the balance of the three parts of your soul. And this is when you are acting justly and you have a sense of justice and you achieve justice in your actions and and through your life. And then Plato said that the polis or the city or the government that we live in is a reflection of our souls on a macroscopic level. So in order for the um, sort of nation or government that you live in to change, and this is obviously very speculative and philosophical, Um, What we need to do is bring our own soul into alignment with these three different parts, have courage, seek wisdom, and live with a sense of moderation. By doing that, our society and our government at large becomes a reflection of our souls, as Plato calls it. All right, so that wraps up my discussion of Plato and his notion of three worlds. And obviously, we'll come back to this many more times throughout this series. But I wanted to touch once more, and I know we've done a lot of Roger Penrose's three-world model, I wanna touch on the arrows that sort of connect the three different worlds in the Roger Penrose three-world model. Roger says that in the Platonic world, we have forms and laws of physics, and this drives the physical manifestation of what happens in the world around us. The physical world then drives our perception and so much of our subjective experience is defined by the content of that conscious experience, of that subjective experience. So the physical world is a primary driving force from physical to mental. And then human experience in the mental world collectively is the basis for forming the platonic world. And so the laws of physics are also the constructs of meaning, and the constructs of meaning are created through or built upon by the experience that we all share collectively. And so the collective action of individual beings leads to the platonic realm. And this is very much um, sort of in line with the collective unconsciousness framing of the platonic world, um, which Carl Jung is, is known to, to express. And Roger Penrose calls this an impossible triangle where how do the physical, mental, and platonic fit together? They seem so different. How do they really map onto each other? And so I wanted to end today's episode with a discussion of what is the platonic world? And is there a way that we could actually create it or have evidence of it in our science? And one theory, and this is very speculative. I think there is a lot of basis for thinking about quantum computers and digital computers like we've done the last um, four episodes or so. But the Platonic realm is much more mysterious than the other two realms. And so we're kind of grasping at straws here. But I think the best model for how we could think about the Platonic world mostly comes from David Bohm, who was a um, really essential quantum physicist who wrote a paper talking about hidden variables. And this is the idea that in entanglement, you have... You know two different photons let's say that come into contact and then they get separated and those two photons share some sort of um, shared wave function with each other and it's been referred to as spooky action at a distance by einstein because simultaneous measurement of the two systems they will have an influence on each other essentially because Space didn't really matter to that quantum system, and in other ways, which we won't go into, time doesn't matter to these quantum systems while they're in superposition together. And so this is a pretty simple connection between the two, and there is sort of a direct causal link between the two photons via their shared state in the past. They just evolve out, and they're separated from each other, and then they're measured, that wave function is destroyed, And so you kind of destroy the connection between the two photons, even though at that moment of measurement, they're connected, but now upon measurement, they're now separated. And so entanglement, simply put, has a very straightforward causal link into the past, where things that were once together and then are separated still share that causal link through their history, their shared history. However, the hidden variables model of David Bohm says that even upon destruction or measurement of these wave functions, there's still a level of hidden variables that sort of permeates the background of all of these quantum systems. One way to think about it is, well, if you go further enough back into the past, all quantum systems shared a single starting point with let's say the Big Bang. And now there's sort of a hidden influence between all systems with all other systems. And so this level of hidden variables is yes, it's related to entanglement or it seems to be strongly related to entanglement. But there is something fundamentally mysterious where it's sort of a deeper level of connection that is built up by entanglement relationships, but we have to accept that there might be some sort of way that even though things get measured and the wave functions are destroyed and collapsed, that they still share some sort of relationship with each other and that there's this web of entanglements where every photon, even though photons share a lot of the same properties as each other, every photon has a unique history where it's had an interaction with different other systems in different patterns and so every wave function is also non-clonable and infinitely unique and so every photon cannot just be reducible to any other photon but at this platonic level or this entanglement level of hidden variables they are infinitely different from each other. And so the idea here, and this is totally speculative, but I think it's worth discussing. And please let me know what you think out there. Um, The idea is that this realm of hidden variables and this realm of entanglement could be a way to sort of think about the universal. Chalmers has this idea of semantics, of universality. Plato has this world of forms. Carl Jung has this collective unconsciousness. And entanglement and hidden variables could serve as this sort of extra-dimensional domain that is shared across space and across time, and it might still have a causal history, like a deterministic causal past. In fact, David Bohm was actually believed in determinism, and he thought that this level of hidden variables was deterministic but it also spread to the universal scale. And David Bohm talks about the pilot wave, which is sort of the ultimate wave function of the entire universe moving collectively. And we are all quantum computers with our own little wave functions, measuring and processing data in our local realities and interacting with each other in a semi non-local fashion. But also we're interacting with this pilot wave at this mega macroscopic universal scale, and that mega macroscopic universal scale is built out of entanglement or somehow maps into this this level of, of webs of interactions and this domain where yes, everything is infinitely unique with its own particular history, but in the grand scheme of things, it's mapped into some sort of web where everything's unique, but then mapped out. So I know it gets a bit abstract here and we'll talk about this more in the future, but I wanted to end thinking about, you know, what does causality look like in this realm where we're all interacting with these mega, this mega pilot wave, right? So if there's like a concept of a square that's somehow instantiated in this pilot wave, we're tapping into that square, it's coming back down, and it's interacting back with us, and this could be sort of, you know, scraping at a scientific framework for understanding universal truth or understanding a world of forms. That pilot wave would be the world that forms exist within. And so it might be viewed as anti-scientific to even think or talk about this stuff, but it's an attempt to bring a scientific framing into something which might necessarily exist and might necessarily need to be describable scientifically. And I, I really view this as like a first pass thinking about these ideas. But please tell me what you think. I mean, I'm not committed or sold on really any of this. It's, it's, I feel like I'm a curator of these concepts and ideas, and I want to provide resources and a way to think about or talk about this, and I have my own take on it. But I'm really interested in what you have to say out there. So the next uh, few episodes, we'll be talking about epistemology. And this is the idea of how do we know what we know? And it is kind of remarkable that we know anything at all. So how does that come about? So moving on from metaphysics, closing the book on metaphysics, we'll be moving into discussion of knowledge and epistemology. And I look forward to talking to you then. Alrighty. Talk to you very soon. Goodbye.